We are beginning today a series through First and Second Thessalonians. First and Second Thessalonians, or the Thessalonian epistles of Paul. I'm going to um, I'm going to talk this afternoon. I think we have time. Talk through the background of Paul's letters to Thessalonica. Uh, that'll take a little while as we think not only about the city, but the church there and the story behind it in the scriptures and the dangers to the church, all of that. But then I do want, um, after that, to get to the usefulness at the end, the usefulness of Paul's letters to Thessalonica and whet your appetite a little bit. So, Thessalonica, it's still a city, Thessaloniki, in Greece, still a prosperous port city. Uh, but the city of Thessalonica was an intersection of land and sea, had an outstanding harbor on the Aegean Sea there, coast of Greece, uh, near the north-south and the east-west roads. The main east-west road across that part of Greece, or Macedonia as that province was called, northern Greece at that time. Uh, the main east-west road was, um, oh, I didn't have it in my notes here, <laughs> um, but it was a famous road that if you took it all the way to the west and then got on a boat and went straight across the water, you'd be right in Italy and get right back on a road that went straight to Rome. So it was, uh, think of it as the interstate system of that day. Uh, it was right by, you could call it an interstate highway, although there were maybe fewer of them of this caliber. Um, it was also right by the north-south route uh, through Macedonia and Achaia, the provinces of northern and southern Greece in the Roman Empire there. Uh, so you have land routes, sea routes, all converging there. It was the Roman capital of the province of Macedonia and, at the time, and it was probably, according to ancient records, the largest city in northern Greece, in Macedonia. So it had a lot of, um, you could say it had a lot of things in common with Portland, actually. <laughs> um, and, um, well, won't bring in all the stuff in recent years <laughs> of some of the less prosperous things about Portland, but uh, the point, my point is, it was a prosperous place in a strategic location. And so Paul came there after he had been in Philippi, which is also in Macedonia, on his second missionary journey. <clears throat> Thessalonica, and I won't go into all the details on this and put you to sleep, but suffice it to say, they had a very cultivated relationship with Rome over the years, and they, they did a good balancing act. If some, if they were, they often found themselves on the wrong side of a fight and then switched sides at just the right time, so that they were still in good with whoever was in power in Rome. Uh, that happened with all the stuff with Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, uh, Caesar Augustus, on down to their time. So, you'll see later when the Christians are accused of talking about another king, Jesus, that was just the thing to set off people in this city against the Christians. The city of Thessalonica, uh, obviously, there's plenty in the commentaries if you want to go there into their introductions to, to learn all the fabulous details about that we know, at least, about this city. Um, but let's talk about the journeys of Paul a bit, and let's turn to Acts chapter 17 for this. Acts 17. Acts 17, verse 1. Uh, actually, before we get to reading Acts 17, uh, I'll read 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2, where Paul reflects on how it was they came to Thessalonica the first time. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 1, Paul says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So if we were to go back to Acts 16, what's just happened in Paul's second missionary journey, 
He had had a vision that he should go over to Macedonia and take the gospel there to Europe for the first time. Um, But then Paul had been in in Philippi. There was no Jewish synagogue there, but there was a group that met by the riverside. And that's where Paul met Lydia, who, among others, the Lord opened her heart to the gospel. Lydia took Paul into her household as a place to stay and a base of operations in Philippi. But then Paul had fallen afoul of some slave owners who owned a demon-possessed girl that told fortunes and because Paul had cast the demon out after the girl had uh, plagued Paul's, uh, dogged Paul's steps. Paul had, had uh, been dragged before the authorities in Philippi um, by these angry slave owners, and without them asking about things such as his Roman citizenship, <laughs> They illegally beat him and Silas, his companion, threw them in prison. And I think you know the story of how the Lord sent an earthquake. The jailer was converted. Paul and Silas um, talked to the officials and and got them to recognize what a bad thing they had done to Roman citizens. But here come Paul and Silas now out of the city of Philippi. They go down the road to the west to the next major city, Thessalonica. Um, they're probably arriving, though though the jailer had dressed their wounds and all that, they'd been beaten with rods in Philippi. They're probably arriving with obvious bruises and wounds on them still from their experience in Philippi. As Paul says, we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. (laughs) Still, they arrived in town and they went right back to gospel proclamation. First of all, in the synagogue. So, Acts 17, now we can start reading uh, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, towns on the road between the two places, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Meaning, in context, there were some ethnic Jews from the synagogue who believed the gospel, but there were more God-fearing Gentiles. who The men wouldn't have been circumcised, but they listened from further out in the synagogue. They... Um, uh, they had rejected false gods. There were these Gentile God-fearers who were not full Jews yet, but they worshipped the true God in some fashion. More of them believed the gospel, Some of the, a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, even, even um, <clears throat> women apparently who were from aristocratic families in the city and might have been at the synagogue. So then we see after that that scene of three Sabbath days at the synagogue there, the establishment of a church, Luke doesn't say much about this period, but it's implied, especially if you look at 1 and 2 Thessalonians, that Paul was in the synagogue for three Sabbath days, and then there seems to have been a period there that Luke doesn't really go into um, when Paul is actually establishing the church. Gary Shogren, in his commentary, says, The author of Acts states that Paul spent three Sabbath days in Thessalonica. It's virtually certain that he is referring only to the initial stage of their work there and not to their entire stay. Number one, Luke tends to telescope events together, tends to smush things together, in order to focus on his larger theological interests, not on the small details. Number two, from what may be gleaned from the Thessalonian letters, the depth of their doctrinal understanding seems well out of proportion to a visit of only three week, of only a few days, only a few weeks. Number three, time would have been needed for the team to show themselves a model of manual labor. As Paul talks about how they lived among them for a while and worked with their hands and so on. Number four, time would also have been needed for the conversion of Gentiles straight out of paganism, as 1 Thessalonians 1.9 talks about. People who would have taken more time to disciple than the others. Number five, the Philippians more than once sent him financial help while he was in Thessalonica, Philippians 4.16. 
that requires more time. Number six, there needs to have been sufficient time to designate what seem to be leaders of the church. First Thessalonians 5.12. I think those are good points. Uh, turn to First Thessalonians 1 with me. First Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 10. We'll see how Paul talks about his relationship he built with the people in Thessalonica, with, with the Christians there. First Thessalonians 1, verse 6. <clears throat> he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not to say anything. For they themselves, that is, people everywhere, as things go out from, from this central city, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, Luke doesn't really go into the fact that there were a bunch of idol-worshipping Gentiles converted when Paul first came there. But Paul mentions it here. Apparently, by the time everything was said and done, the majority of the church, it seems even, had just been pagans. Not even God-fearing Gentiles. They'd been pagans, most of them. And there'd been a period of time when somehow Paul got them the gospel and they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Well, back to the account in Acts 17, eventually there were legal actions, legal actions taken by Paul's enemies. Acts 17, verse 5, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Apparently Paul and his companions were staying with a man named Jason. He would have been a rich, wealthy man if he had a house they could stay in. Verse 6, And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. So they're accusing them of civil unrest everywhere they go. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. They liked their reputation with Rome. They didn't even want a little group in their city getting ideas and, and uh, plotting against Rome. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go, it says. In this ancient context, taking money as security was probably having Jason, the wealthy man, give money, promising that, number one, the peace will be kept. There won't be another uproar. Number two, Paul and Silas are going to leave. <laughs> that seems to be the idea. So the Jews were jealous of losing people from their synagogue and losing influence in town. And they went to, as we find other accounts in this time period, they went uh, to find men who who uh, didn't have enough good to do they were kind of they were rabble rousers and they would do anything they would stir up a crowd probably for money or something so the jews stirred up the crowds to uh, bring charges against paul and silas specifically it seems they couldn't find them they so they brought jason his host instead before the authorities and accused them basically of civil unrest and treason So now the church has a black eye in the community in Thessalonica and Paul has to leave suddenly before he wants to. 1 Thessalonians 2.14, Paul comments, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen, not, not meaning just Gentiles, but the people in their city, you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, 
so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last, or to the uttermost. So there's after Paul has run out of town, there's this retreat and pursuit. Paul retreats to the, a city named Berea for things to calm down. And there, there he preaches Christ again, as we'll see. But there's a pursuit. The Jews from Thessalonica come after Paul to stir up trouble for him where he goes. Acts 17.10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. <clears throat> they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In Thessalonica, only a few of the ethnic Jews had taken Paul seriously. Uh, more of them did in Berea. That's why they were more noble, and they searched the scriptures to see if it was so. So it says, verse 12, many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. There's some confusion, uh, or there, there's some, um, uh, some vagueness here, I guess, as far as exactly when some of this stuff happened that I'm about to describe. Um, but probably, probably uh, when Paul was at Athens... Um, some of his associates were sent back, he mentions Timothy specifically, sent back to Thessalonica to check on them. Paul was worried about the church in Thessalonica. He hadn't been with them as long as he wanted to be, planning that church. Um, and then, as we'll see, there's, this, there's going to be this correspondence back and forth. But let me read, first of all, 1 Thessalonians 2.17. Paul says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when we could bear it no longer, I, and when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. So Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on them. And as a result of that, uh, Timothy eventually returns, whether Paul's in Athens or Corinth. People talk about it. Timothy comes back and he has a good report. There are problems, but it's overall a good report. There's still a church there in Thessalonica. They still love and, 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 they still love and trust Paul and his gospel he preached to them. And so, Paul writes what we know as 1 Thessalonians. Um, as Kevin mentioned recently, as he taught, introduced Galatians, uh, Galatians is probably the first epistle Paul wrote that we have. But um, this is probably the second, second one chronologically that we have. 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes to the Thessalonians thanking God for them, trying to encourage them, and also answering some questions they have, and trying to instruct them in their newfound faith a bit where he perceives there might be weaknesses. 1 Thessalonians 3, 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. <clears throat> Paul moved on from Athens south to Corinth. 
in the southern province of Achaia, there in Greece. Acts 18, verse 1 says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. We, don't ha- we fill in a few blanks along the way here, but basically Paul sent 1 Thessalonians, and then it was pretty quick after that that 2 Thessalonians got penned too. So it seems some associates of Paul, they took the first letter there, then they come back to Paul telling him about more problems. And some of them have grown a little worse. So then Paul pens 2 Thessalonians while he's in Corinth, and he sends, uh, he sends that up to Thessalonica. So, you, so there's some uncertainty here whether this coming from Macedonia of, of Silas and Timothy is before or after 2 Thessalonians is written. But in any case, you get the big picture. As Paul begins his second letter to the church in Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians 1, we read this. Paul, Silvanus, another name for Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. We don't know exactly what kind, what form the persecutions were taking, but apparently things kept heating up for these new believers. And think about it. They've only been Christians for months, not even years. Um, We know that there was great Jewish opposition trying to get them in legal trouble. We also know that the Gentiles around them would not have understood their new faith, rejecting all the old gods. And that would have affected every area of life, as I'll mention more in a minute. But somehow, maybe they were losing jobs. Maybe some were getting in legal trouble, even imprisoned. We don't know. Maybe some died. It's hard to say. But Paul is writing Second Thessalonians, yes, because there's more problems now, but also to keep encouraging them, to stick with it. And as he says there in the first chapter of Second Thessalonians, there's coming a day when Jesus will return, and when he does, he will consume your enemies. He's encouraging them in that way. And when Christ returns, not only will he consume your enemies and throw them into hellfire, but he will glorify you on that day. You will be vindicated in your faith. Well, let's talk about some dangers to the church, which come up in Paul's letters here. As I said, there was opposition from both Jews and Greeks. If you think about the perspective of the Jewish people in the synagogue, uh, why were they so incensed at Paul? Why were they so angry? Well, first of all, they would think of him as a false prophet who was blaspheming, claiming that a shamefully crucified criminal named Jesus of Nazareth was God's anointed Messiah. And not only that, God in the flesh. But beyond that, and that angered Jews wherever Paul went and if they didn't believe the gospel. Beyond that, they also probably wanted to say that Paul was greedy and that was motivating him to deceive people with this message. To gather a following and get money maybe, influence something. It's ironic because that's exactly what they were mad about losing. Money and influence. G.K. Beale says, although it's likely that many of the Gentiles, um, well, I'll back up. He says, uh, Acts 17.5 says that the Jews were jealous 
after a large number of Gentile God-fearers believed Paul's preaching in the synagogue. Although it's likely that many of the Gentiles who subsequently became Christians were not of the upper class, those converted in the synagogue were probably fairly wealthy. It says it was prominent Gentile women, Acts 17.4, and they may well have been financially supportive of the synagogue. So you see, if you lose prominent people from prominent families on whom you depended for support, uh, that, that's going to anger you too. And that seems to have made the Jews very jealous of Paul. As for those who came straight out of paganism, who turned to God from idols, I don't, I don't think we often feel the weight of that either in that ancient context. Oh, so they didn't go to the temple with them anymore. Is that it? <laughs> no, that's not it. Think about the expectations. If you were a Gentile, not a God-fearing Gentile, but a regular Gentile, think of the expectations placed on you by the family, by society, by every aspect of your life. The expectations of pagan idolatry. Gary Shogren says, religion, speaking of religion there in Greece in that time, religion existed on two levels, the civic and the domestic. To be a good citizen meant to pay respect to the patron deities. This included participation in feasts, sacrifices, celebrations, games, and other public events. Every occasion had its religious turn, from banquets to games to business transactions. I think I've mentioned before at some point, if you were in a guild of craftsmen, you had to offer sacrifices to the gods so they'd prosper your business. If you wanted to go to a birthday party, we've, we have, we found ancient invitations to birthday parties. Where were they, where was this held often? The temple of some god. That's where food sacrificed idols came in. Paul had to tell the Corinthians, stop going to idol temples to feast in the temple. Even though you say it's just meat. <laughs> and there was domestic religion. So there was the public aspect of it, civic, and then there's the home life. Domestic religion involved women more than did the public. It was their temple, although the male head of the family had the title of priest. There were household shrines to Hestia, goddess of the hearth. Banquets were dedicated to the gods. Births, marriages, rites of passage, and funerals all included their religious element. Fortune-telling and astrology were important facets of life. So were pilgrimages to oracle shrines, such as the famous one at Delphi. People sought answers to questions of love, success at business, and health. This was everything. There was no... We live in a culture which wants to separate the secular from the sacred. But in the ancient world, there was no separation. It was all mixed up together. Your duty to your country, to your family, to the gods, it was all the same to them. And yet, these Thessalonian Christians had not added Jesus to their collection of gods. That would have been fine. They were always adding to their collection of gods. In fact, in Thessalonica, they worshipped many Egyptian gods, besides the Greek gods. Uh, just one example, they were fine adding to their collection, to their pantheon. That's not what these Thessalonian Christians had done. They had turned to God, Paul says, from idols. To serve the living and true God and to wait for the risen Jesus to return from heaven. They had an entirely different outlook that changed everything about their life. And this was going to create an earthquake in their society. The culture also, I think you know, was being pagan and being Greco-Roman, it was immoral. We see an indication of this in that Paul uh, has to say in 1 Thessalonians 4, he, has, he feels he has to repeat the need for moral purity. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. 
that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, at some level, married women were, at some level, I say, expected to be faithful to their husbands because they wanted to be sure that any offspring were legitimate heirs. But the men, it was normal, it was expected, they'd probably have, you know, maybe maybe a wife, although, well, I'll get to that in a minute, um, but they'd probably have mistresses, they'd probably be with the prostitutes, just normal. Um, slave girls in their household, they'd use them as well. Um, and again, it's not that the women were just perfectly chaste either. <laughs> um, there was bisexuality at work a lot of the time. Homosexuality was in there. Um, there was uh, men using boys. There's all sorts of filth. And... Um, I, I did read in my studies this week that there was even uh, a seemingly a bit of a shortage of wives because um, in this for a number of reasons, but for one thing, in this culture, we have abortion. They had exposure. Uh, often, if, they, if, if you want to only feed a certain number of mouths in the house or be responsible for a certain number of children, but you want boys for heirs, you have a baby girl... Maybe you don't want the baby girl. You just set the baby out in the forest and walk away. That was their form of abortion often. <clears throat> um, and so uh, it, we have indications that actually there were, this is a side note, of course, actually there was a shortage of wives sometimes. Sometimes uh, men might commonly not even get married till they're 30 because they might not find a wife. Um, there's more I could go into there. But Christianity came in and just overturned the whole moral landscape for people. Um, and so that was this was a danger to the church. Not only outright persecution and misunderstanding from both Jews and Greeks, also just the temptations of living somewhere where uh, blatant sin against God was normal. And then there were fraudulent teachings at work. There was confusion about the last things, the end times, the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, all of this. And so Paul has to say in 1 Thessalonians 4, he doesn't want them to be uninformed about those, who, those Christians who have already died, those who are asleep. Um, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again... Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul's saying, those Christians who have already died, they won't miss out when Christ returns. They won't miss out on eternal life. But there was some confusion, apparently, about that. Again, Paul had taught them as thoroughly as he could while he was there, but he'd been rushed out of town. Then again, 2 Thessalonians 2 Verse 1, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Apparently some, and this heresy is still around today in various forms, but apparently some were trying to say, oh, you misunderstood Christ returning in the clouds, that's spiritual. Resurrection of the dead, that's spiritual, and it's already happened. So you misunderstood. <laughs> or, either that, or we're ready, it's happening now. And in the midst of all that, not only were there, was there doctrinal confusion and even heresy being brought in from some source... It's amazing how fast, as Paul planted churches, there were already false teachers popping up. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> uh, they're right there on the scene, months after Paul's there. But not only that, there were people counterfeiting Paul, apparently. 
He said, because Paul just said, don't be quickly shaken if you get a letter that says it's from me about this. Let me remind you what I told you when I was there. And it's not what that letter said. People were counterfeiting the apostle. And he says at the end of 2 Thessalonians 3.17, I'm sorry, at the end of 2 Thessalonians, it's chapter 3, verse 17, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. So he puts a special signature or something. He was probably using a secretary for the rest of it. He's saying, this is my mark of authenticity, that this is really a letter from me. One last thing I'll mention about dangers to the church, and that is there were some in the church who were unruly and idle busybodies. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul had to say, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent, dependent on no one. I read one commentator who's, who thinks that this may have been encouraged, this laziness may have been encouraged by the culture for some people. It may not have even been the lower classes. Um, there was a culture of cl- clients and patrons. You, you might have someone who basically takes care of your needs. And if you don't want to work in some situations, maybe you don't really have to. <laughs> and so maybe you have too much time on your hands to go around, maybe, maybe coming up with bad doctrine for your brothers and sisters, maybe looking into their affairs, being nosy, who knows? <laughs> but some people were being busybodies and idle, and unruly. 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, verse 12, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Again, um, as we'll see coming up here, there were some who were undisciplined, unruly, which could indicate they were causing problems in the church as well with, with leadership and Uh, Peace among the brothers. And he says next verse, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. That's not the best translation in the ESV. Nasby says the unruly. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. But then Paul ramps it up in 2 Thessalonians 3 because apparently this problem hadn't gone away. (laughs) People had become more obstinate in not getting a job, in getting into other people's business. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Again, the Nasby says, who leads a disorderly life. And not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not undisciplined, as Nasby says, when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So apparently some people were just mooching off of others. Verse 9. It was not because we do not have that right. Paul had the right to support from the gospel. But to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Or Nasby says... Some among you are leading an undisciplined life. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. I think you have a good background now for these letters. But think about their usefulness more directly for us. Um... Three general areas I'll mention here. There's an indivisible union, first of all. There's an indivisible union between doctrine and practice in these letters. Um, More obviously even than in some of Paul's other epistles. Think of the book of Romans. Think of the epistle to the Ephesians or to the Colossians. How are those books structured? Well, first... You have a largely doctrinal section. 
then you have it worked out in practice in a second section, right? Um, like in the book of Romans, the largely doctrinal section goes through chapter 11, then chapter 12, you start the section more on practice. But here in these Thessalonian letters, Paul freely moves back and forth between doctrine and practice. You could even say he doesn't have to move back and forth very much. They rarely form separate sections in these epistles. Doctrine and practice go hand in hand. And that's useful for us to to see in action as Paul lays out his letters. Doctrine and practice hand in hand. Now we have to be careful also because we might then go off um, in the other ditch and say, oh, well... um, Doctrine and practice go hand in hand, and therefore we should only spend time on that which is practical in Scripture. But the truth is, every part of Scripture is practical. That's the truth. Um, And the example here that I think should um, challenge us as Christians as to not, not dismissing some parts of Scripture as unpractical there's an example here in 2 Thessalonians where Paul, Paul um, expected these new believers in Thessalonica to understand some pretty complicated things and then apply it to their lives. He expected these new believers, and we look at this and go, what? He expected them to understand some complicated things about Daniel's visions and what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and the all of that discourse. And then to have a solid understanding of the final Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. <laughs> These people had been Christians for just a matter of months. And Paul's saying, he's gently rebuking them. He's saying, don't you remember I told you about these things when I was with you? <laughs> and we say, you did? Wow. And ironically, it's that very section of Paul's teaching that even some in our circles tend to treat as rather unimportant to understand. Now, again, Paul applied such a doctrine to their situation. But he also expected the humblest believer in that church to first grasp things that many today want to leave in the seminary classroom, honestly. So, doctrine and practice go hand in hand, but that includes all doctrine, everything taught in every part of Scripture. Now, if we get outside Scripture, that's another thing, isn't it? (laughs) Um, when men come up with doctrines they think are based on Scripture, but can get quite speculative. But if a doctrine is laid out in Scripture, even if it's a tough part of Scripture, and there are tough parts, it's practical. And we need to do the hard work uh, over time of figuring out how it's practical. Well, speaking of the fact that all biblical doctrine is practical... um, One big theme comes out in Thessalonians... First and second, and that is the practical importance of Christ's return. Paul does not simply correct false views of Christ's return and think he's done his job. He doesn't simply say, okay, you got the wrong facts, here are the right facts. Okay, we're good. No. Read carefully, even in your own time, I challenge you, read through these letters, they're not long. Read through them for yourself. And note the number of times the coming of Christ comes up just as part of what Paul is saying about everything else. Not just when he's addressing eschatology, the doctrine of last things. He constantly reinforces the right use of this doctrine of Christ's return just by how he always talks about it. Remember, he says, they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come, from the coming judgment day. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. He says, "Why Why is it that I can't wait to see you again? And that I want to be very sure that Satan hasn't deceived you It's because you're my reward when Christ returns. I don't want to lose you. 
I don't want to stand there in front of our Lord when he comes again without you. It's very practical. 1 Thessalonians 3.11 Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Again, Paul has his eye always on the coming of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And I already talked about 2 Thessalonians 1 where Paul encourages them. You and your sufferings are being vindicated that you are worthy of the kingdom of God. And when Jesus comes, he will take care of your enemies. And he'll give you glory. So application. Even beyond this particular doctrine. If you learn doctrine as facts. Without learning why to love those facts and how to use them. Then you're dangerously vulnerable to false doctrine. I can say that about say the doctrine of the Trinity. If you learn the facts of the doctrine of the Trinity. But you have no idea why you should love that doctrine or how you should use it, you might end up as one of the many Baptists who get sucked into Jehovah's Witnesses, or the Mormons. There are many of them, because they heard some facts. Maybe it didn't stick all the way with them, but more importantly, they didn't learn to love those facts as they ought to. Don't just learn the facts. Learn why they matter and how to use them. And then you'll have an affection that binds that doctrine to you and people can't easily rip it away. And when you see someone misusing a doctrinal text that you've come to love already, you won't just say that's wrong. You'll say, I can't stand that. I can't stand how they're abusing the word of God in that way because I've grown to love it the way it's supposed to be used. One last um, one last aspect of usefulness that I want to point out, and then we're done. There's a tender heart that comes out in these epistles. Paul's tender heart for Christ's sheep. Hear the emotional language that he uses as he interacts with these baby Christians. Hear, hear the metaphors he uses like a mother or a father for their children. Hear how he feels about them. And not just how he feels about them, but how when he was with them, he poured himself into them in, term of in terms of time, in terms of energy, in terms of all his resources. 1 Thessalonians 2.6 Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, does that make you uncomfortable? If a shepherd of God's flock says, I'm affectionately desirous of you, <laughs> might make you uncomfortable in our culture, but it shouldn't if you're a Christian. We were uh, being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you would become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. One shorter example, 1 Thessalonians 5.12. Um, and this is not Paul talking about himself. He's then saying, imitate me in that. You have a heart for the sheep, people in Thessalonica. He says, we ask you, brothers, we already read this, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. 
be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So my application of, of that is, is this how we are treating believers among us? And I think these letters will be helpful for us to work not just on the doctrine we believe and not just on doing the right things, but having the right heart for each other. How about the faint-hearted? Are there troubled people or people who, who often get discouraged that you feel like, and I don't really want to talk to them again because they're just going to weigh me down. Or do you stick with them? Do you encourage the faint-hearted in the congregation? What about the weak? Those who want to do what's right, but they don't have all the right habits in place yet. And they struggle. They're weak, they're weak in the face of the enemy. Do we say, well, well okay, we tried, but... We don't have time to deal with your issues, man. <laughs> or do you help the weak? How about those recently converted? Which all these people were in this context. All recently converted. Do we seek to bring them into our lives? To go see them where they live? In their context? To, to, to get into to learn not just what they believe, but what's in their hearts. Do we have affection for people? And do we go out of our way? Do we clear our family and work schedules if we can to have this right at the heart of our lives? That's what we need in any church and this church. And I think the Thessalonian epistles will bring that out for us if we listen to them well. Thank you. We're five minutes past where I wanted to be, but thank you for your patience. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we thank you so much for the encouragement we already have just as we dip our toe in this water, this water of life in your word. Thank you for preserving these letters for us. Because indeed, they aren't just useful for people in a first century city in Greece. But they're useful for all your people and for us as much as anyone. Help us to delight in your word and help us to uh, examine ourselves even to the point of discomfort in light of your word. Help us to do practical things to change. Help us to also not have lazy minds, but as Paul encouraged these young believers to understand even hard doctrines so that they will not fall for the devil's traps. Help us for Jesus' sake to be those who walk worthy of the calling with which he's called us, with which you've called us, Father. And we ask that you will prosper your church and extend it and extend the reign of your son through uh, our time in these letters. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.